The following discussions are a further look into Director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Window with your friends Greg and Toby. At this point, you will have heard six whole episodes on, I think at this point, the first two-thirds of what would be part one of Arlington. This is something I only found out recently because I was in the possession of a very ancient copy of Arlington that was put out on Patreon before it even had chapter titles and everything like that. And I commented at some point, like, oh, unlike other books, Arlington doesn't have specific parts to it, which delineate out specific sections of the book that have their own thematic resonance. And the ubiquitous response was, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I specifically got that from Dan Mayer, I think. Not, not just Dan, actually. Dan was the one that spoke up first. But then Alex specifically showed me a picture that he'd taken of the table of contents from a printed version of the book. And I'm like, oh. And then I showed him what I had. The ebook copy that I had not only didn't have chapter headings, it like is like, oh, chapter one. And then it divided it out by quote unquote journal entry. So if mm. a chapter had more than one narrator, as taking yeah, part Frank, in it. Annie, yeah. Thomas. Yeah, so yeah. It would divide it out that way and everything like that. And so therefore it didn't even have parts either. So mm. by the time we get to the end of chapter 12, that will actually be the culmination here of what is referred to as part one allies. And I have, I put that designation into this is how we're separating out our own discussions on Through the Window as well, in terms of this is going to be, at this point, what we're recording right now is going to be uh, Allies Part 7, I guess, possibly Part 8 and Part 9 too, depending on how long we go on. Uh, and from there, whatever we record after this is going to be the beginning of Part 2, The Search Begins. Many beginnings. Yes, well, I mean, you know, every every ending is a new beginning and everything like that. As uh, and semi-sonic. apparently every middle is also a beginning. <laughs> well, so as we start talking about Chapter 9, what's happening here is not a beginning in and of itself, but it's, it is showing us a different kind of scenario from what we had seen before. Because almost every episode prior to this, not only is titled in a way that it is introducing a person, the colonel, the writer, the director, the, uh, the engineers, and everything like that. Here, what it's introducing is an event. 
and it's a very personal event because now we are getting to see the Arlingtons in their quote-unquote natural habitat of being a family together. And one of the elements of this that I, I got into is specifically that it's been referred to in different iterations of the written novel as being both The Family Gathering and The Thanksgiving. Both titles work, but they refer to a potentially metaphorical aspect to the events that take place. This is going forward a little bit on our original outline, but it feels like this is the natural lead-in point. Mm. Part of the reason why both of these titles are significant but allude to different aspects of a similar thing is that mm. one of the things we learned very early in this chapter, well, very early, midway through the chapter perhaps, is that the Arlingtons used to have a son, Frederick, but mm. that he had been infected by a Wendigo attack and had changed. This is something we knew sort of as a result of the story that Thomas included in the cartographer's handbook. Uh, I don't remember now. I, if... we, we definitely did hear about his son. I don't know if we heard specifics about truth and harry as well i think it may have made reference to his daughters yeah exactly at this point frank would know about it because that's one of the lead-ins to this chapter is that he's read the handbook mm. therefore read the personal account but he wasn't necessarily going to bring it up in conversation no. uh, it's just that because of the topic of the naming convention harry pipes up and it, it sends Thomas down a dark path. Even with the family altogether, this is not a whole gathering due to that loss. Mm. And meanwhile, Thomas refers to it as a thanksgiving. And one of the things I commented to you is that one can't help but ponder if the transposition of that term from November to March might it all be associated with the fact that Frederick died in mid-November? Uh, well, I, I hadn't considered the fact that Frederick had died in November. Yeah, that certainly adds to a reason why he would want to invoke the spirit of the holiday without necessarily carrying the date attached to it. Something I want to note, though, is how... How well the audio version of the scene conveys the energy of the moment. The performance of Loretta as Harry and Alex as Thomas makes the innocence reference of Harry to her brother feel entirely well-meaning and heartfelt in motivation, while Thomas's emphatic effort to create a control over the situation by bringing together all of these elements within his own home to create an impressive Thanksgiving meal for the occasion is it's dissipated and his voice feels so weak after the long haunting silence of Frederick's absence being called to mind it stops the story and the audience in its tracks because that moment where the audio drama stops essentially with a few sound effects to make you know that the audio file is continuing to play, that your phone didn't just sort of hit pause accidentally. It's a gap in the conversation because it invokes an absence in the family, and that 
absence is just conveyed so palpably in that moment in the audio drama. Yeah. One of the things that came to mind on revisiting that moment is when I was remembering it initially, I was remembering it as being just this long, painful silence before anyone speaks again. And it was only on revisiting it that I realized that, first of all, to set the stage for what's going on here, we're hearing the ticking of a clock in the background that's sort of just providing diegetic sound to what's going on. And then after Harry says that, you know, explains Frederick's name, the ticking stops and we're just hearing the bong of the clock. The same grandfather clock that Harry herself took apart. That was mentioned all the way back in chapter three. Like I, I, I had to refer back to the text itself and it specifically says that, yes, it's the it's the grandfather clock. It's a grandfather clock that's going off. And there's only one grandfather clock that we know that is associated with the Arlingtons. So it has to be that Fuck, same you're good clock. at this, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. sometimes, sometimes you pick up on stuff that I completely miss. So, yeah, it, it, there's plenty of stuff to share around. But, like, mm-hmm. that's the punctuating moment into the silence before people talk again is the grandfather clock doing its chiming. And eventually it leads into what sounds like church bells going off, Mm. which adds another layer onto, because, you know, you you think of the church, you think of, you think of God, you think of weddings, but you also think of funerals. I, I think that church bells kind of carry a feeling of not necessarily like faith in God, at least not to me. It's sort of, feels more like a ceremony is taking place and mm-hmm. there's a I think an audible difference between the different ones but you know it can be anything ranging from wedding bells to actual like you know for a, like a funeral I like I'm not even that sure if funeral funerals necessarily incorporate uh, bells like commonly but um I think that something that the presence of that grandfather clock that was taken apart and then put back together again that something i'm kind of curious about is that that like quiet because there's also a quiet utterance from harry after she kind of realizes that Mm. what she's created as a result of just bringing up and it's not that she really did anything wrong like Mm. talking about frederick is not really and, and it's something that a lot of families do is that you can like a member of the family who's no longer there can still you know be part of like these conversations about like you know the different members of the family it's just that this is such a sore point that that absence is just really difficult even to acknowledge and because of the way that harry can sometimes retreat into her head it feels like this might be an instance where her perception of time maybe slipped for a moment or mm-hmm. her acknowledgement of things. And it, to me, feels as if that clock is kind of a little sad reminder that that is something that can't be repaired. The mm. clock, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah the I clock was can be, but this thing with Frederick, it can't be. And I, I think that 
what the, uh, Thomas says, it's a really apt thing for him to say, which is to like, he just busies himself with the turkey because he, mm-hmm. it kind of uses the diegetic sound and all of the meaning and weight behind it to kind of be something that Thomas can practically like see to, which is that the clock's gone off. That means that like it's time to take the turkey or check on mm-hmm. the turkey. So it's a wonderfully impactful moment. And as we've said, the sort of necessity of cartographer's handbook is one of those sort of things that's up to reader discretion but uh i think that this carries across the emotion of the account with frederick in the book rather well but even if you don't know it just immediately you're able to get what invoking this extra member of the arlington family who isn't present mm-hmm. means and yeah it hits you for those that hadn't actually read the cartographer's handbook, this would be the first indication mm. for the reader that there mm. there is this absence in the family. Obviously, the cartographer's handbook goes into greater detail on mm. what exactly happened without providing all of the details. Yes. But this is a bit of part and parcel of what Thomas was trying to accomplish with this part of his narrative to not just explain who he is and where he's come from, but that he has specifically experienced a loss at the hands of the Wendigo, like many other people listening to it might mm. well have. That narrative is very under control. It's a, it's a form of the order that he loves. He mm. wrote down the words he wants to share with everybody else, and that makes him seem like a leader in terms of this is what happened to me. I dealt with it as I needed to. And then I went on to put stuff into place and rose to a position of leadership, not simply to protect my family, but, you know, sort of along the lines of, say, a narrative that you might associate with Bruce Wayne, try and accomplish goals to help prevent the, anyone else from having to have gone through this as well. I mean, there's so many people that are lost at this point that can't be brought back, but you can, at the very least, build a future which will hopefully reduce the occasions where this kind of loss is going to happen between parent and child. I think the purpose of it, or the purpose that Thomas draws out from it, because it was something terrible that happened to him and his family and now he is trying to use it as just inspiration for himself motivation Mm. for himself but also to demonstrate his point to the rest of america through his accounting of it in the handbook which is that we are all unified through our Mm. loss I am not speaking to you academically on this. I know what it's like to lose the very worst thing that you can lose. And I am nevertheless, like, you know, marching forward with this. Like, we can all do something about this. And you wrote something very specific when I mm. when I mentioned us talking about Thomas relating how he carried Frederick's death with him and how he mm. lets it out in Frank's presence, at least, not in Sarah's presence. 
you, I'd like you to relate your thoughts on that mm. that quiet moment between the two of them. Oh, thank you. The grief Thomas lets out in his private conversation with Frank calls to mind that heartbreaking line of King Theoden's from the Two Towers that I will be honest, just like going back to it and re-watching the scene while watching these notes. I was a wreck for a good half hour uh, last night. It's that line that you, I think most people familiar with the trilogy, of which I'm sure many of our listenership are. It's when he says, No parents should have to bury their child. Bernard Hill's performance always made that moment stick in my head. In the middle of all the fantasy and grand production and poetic dialogue, the simplicity of that line and the horror, the very real, unvarnished, emotional horror of that situation always hit me. There's no armoring yourself against that kind of tragedy. It can't be anything other than devastating. And that's what I hear in Thomas's voice in this scene. We know that the man we know Thomas to be isn't all traced back to that moment, however. We know his story before he lost Frederick. And we know that he had conviction before that traumatic point in his life. He fought, learned, and planned for the future before experiencing the worst. But... It nevertheless feeds into all of that conviction. He knows what this has cost him, a cost that others have likely shared, like I mentioned a moment ago, and a cost that might be repeated who knows how many more times again in the future if something isn't done. Sarah describes him as the angriest man she's ever met. That's a really concerning thing to hear a wife describe her husband to be, and yet we know that she doesn't mean it in a way that his anger risks danger to her her daughters or anyone he cares about and loves. Thomas's disposition is not like that husband we heard about from Samson in mm. Secret Rooms. Thomas is not abusive. We never get that impression. But that anger is nevertheless there, and it is targeted towards all the parts of the world that deal such undeserved damage. That anger even a righteous anger that we could never imagine Thomas Arlington would let be misdirected at his family or to inadvertently harm them in the process of channeling it. That's a fire that one worries could burn Thomas down to nothing but ash. Yeah, when I was originally reflecting on this moment in the chapter... I couldn't help but think about what we'd already been discussing about the nature of Hamartia and mm. what aspects of Thomas could lead to whatever fall is coming to him at the end of the story. You and I know, obviously, but for mm. new readers, we are obviously not it's, discussing yeah. it until it happens. Mm. But, you know, we reflected on his stubbornness back in chapter five. And now we hear about the anger that's in him, mm. which we haven't completely seen yet at this mm. point in the story. It it flares up at a different point, which we're going to get to. Yeah, but that that scene with the phone definitely lets some of it out. <laughs> yes, well, that okay, that that is definitely true. That he was clearly exceptionally irritated and even angry with Tremaine 
because he just did not want to have to deal with him constantly pushing at his boundaries in a far more insistent and disrespectful way than Calvin Wilson's playful, like, yes, I'm, go- I'm going to sit here and you're going to bring me a drink and a cigar before I, mm-hmm. before I tell you my tale. Or even, as we're going to get into in a little bit, the far more calling on the carpet that Raven ends up doing with Thomas's words and actions uh, mm-hmm. and everything like that. D- Tremaine is very specifically pushing a different kind of button but for all of that, for all that he loses his temper a little bit in Chapter 8, the more significant thing that I feel is going on here is that it's not... It's, the, the anger is, like, peeking out a little bit, but it's primarily because he is trying to solve some pressing issues, and he can't mm. do that because he can't think straight with the phone constantly interrupting him. He knows that he needs to keep his temper on an even keel when he actually deals with Tremaine because he needs to he needs this man's support in order for his goals. He wouldn't work with Tremaine if he didn't have to. Again, as we'll get into in a little bit, which outlines some of the reasons why Mm. they're asking for Tremaine's help to begin with. Mm. But that later scene in chapter 12 I think is a far more apt example of what Thomas actually looks like when that anger comes out with fewer checks and balances when when that's his guiding not necessarily principle or even emotion but just that's mm-hmm. the force that like he is that drives him and I, w- I would agree that what we've seen so far is anger popping up and flaring out and but it is nevertheless like matched with his control his mm-hmm. practicalities we have not seen the anger in isolation or mm-hmm. like, what it is at its core mm-hmm. and the thing that let's just take away all of the ideas of you need to make things better or you need to make sure that the right thing gets done what makes you angry that is something that we haven't seen yet. And it's after the conversation with Sarah, I think we're confident that it is there mm-hmm. and we're afraid to see what it looks like because if Thomas really does let it all out or acknowledge it, then, like I said, it could be the thing that just destroys the rest of him because... Mm. Yeah, it, he's got a lot of very understandable frustration and mm. rage there. I, I remember someone using that line before of, this, you're the angriest man that I've ever met. It was actually something that was present in the pilot of a TV show called Justified with Timothy Oliphant of Deadwood fame. Mm. And in that case, you know, there it's a show with a white man at its core. And unfortunately, stories with angry white men. Hmm. Uh, as something that came up recently in uh, a bit of... There's an untapped hum- market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the bit of sarcastic humor in terms of 
the loading ready one, people were basically covering a comment that was made about the newest um, Final Fantasy being centered <laughs> around. Um, I'm so glad that you invoked that because I was yes, the man that wanted to kill chaos. And Graham, I'll, I'll probably just cut uh, in with the actual quote, but Graham was like, Finally. I mean, thank God. I can't think of a storyline catered to less by video games than that of an angry man. Oh my God. I'm so glad that that was brought up because <laughs> now I'm just like, uh, well, actually, heck, oh my God. Thomas really does want to kill chaos, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had. I There's had one even... thing I know is that I have to kill chaos. Uh, but like, in all seriousness, the the point I was going to make, but and not just to cite a meme, was to say that I think that anger is a lot more interesting to explore in media mm. when, first of all, it's not necessarily like a overserved, a frankly overserved percentage of the population who it's like oh i'm just so angry it's like about what like about mm -hmm. what uh chaos it's like oh so some <laughs> fantasy thing okay yeah. cool let's like look at something that's actually like real but like the point i was going to make is that a character who starts at like anger is driving me that like mm -hmm. that is where they start from that's kind of a, like, this is not something you sustain. A character who you're assured has a lot of anger that they are actively trying to, you know, either channel towards constructive purposes or to sort of stifle or to just do something about it. Diffuse, at least. Diffuse. Stif stifling feels like the kind of thing that, like, okay, if you're, if you're trying to pretend the anger isn't there then that's mm. going to blow up eventually. Mm. As, as, as long as you're doing something constructive with it, as long as yes. you are, are doing something mm. to try and reduce it. Thomas uh, never then... really pretends that that anger isn't there, I don't mm. think. I think he just like is trying to sort of channel it or to just sort of diffuse it, as you say, by like trying to do something about it. But... That's the point, is that like we're not starting at Thomas being a Kratos or and in fact, like that's another good example, is that like mm -hmm. the version of Kratos as seen in the PS4 game seems a lot more compelling than what I've seen of the character in the previous installments, mm. because you're certain that this guy can and will get angry, and he does throughout a lot of God of PS4. But what you see of him at the start that's not where he is starting from. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, how do we get there? With Thomas, it's a similar thing of like, we're not just starting at the point of eruption because then it's sort of like, well, what are we building to? Because this is the sort of thing that really can't or shouldn't be sustained. You can't be in that state all of the time when it's just active and eruptive and bursting out of you. I don't think that you can make a whole game or a whole story with a character like that. Instead, what you do is you build to that point mm -hmm. and then it means something. It's not just a flavor that you're like, yeah, this will sell some fucking t-shirts, won't it? Mm. You love it. <laughs> you love it. You love this chaos killing motherfucker, don't you? Yeah. 
let the anger have some meaning behind it because mm-hmm. it's not just the base level. It's mm-hmm. the thing that you build to. I think it's also, in Thomas's case, he may feel a greater need to control it than other people, not just because he understands that anger can get in the way of the practicality in, ter- in, in terms of getting done what he needs to do, but because he is a black man, there are specific opinions about people's responses to an angry black man that are different from people's responses to an angry white man. So he very specifically has to remain under control so that people don't have reactions to him that is going to get in the way of the larger picture, which is fixing America. Mm. You know, he has to be able to work with people that want to follow him and work with people that aren't sure of him and work with people like Tremaine, so to speak. So he has to rein all of that in Mm. for the greater good because he is not free. God, great line there. Okay. He is not free to be as angry and have it be accepted as a white man. Yeah, exactly. I don't necessarily know that I have anywhere else to go with that particular topic, so let's no, move I on. I think and that's there. honestly, I think this is a necessary thing to cover with Thomas's character is that like we talked a lot about like control and all of that, but like it's not just that like just because that's potentially wrapped up in his like Hamasha or his journey in this story, that there is absolutely other things that come into it. Mm-hmm. One thing that is a very brief tangent from anything that we have written down, but it came to mind, and I don't necessarily have notes for it, so this will be Mm -hmm. a bit unstructured, but there was a scene that I appreciated and I had forgotten about where Frank, after the uh, Thanksgiving, meets Thomas in, I think, his study or in a room that has a either billiards or pool table. It's a billiards table, yes. Yeah, a billiards table. And they. I like the exchange of, do you want to play? And if so, is there even a chance of me like winning? (laughs) I don't know if this was in Alex's mind, but there is a scene in season three of The West Wing where Toby Ziegler challenges Charlie Young to a game of pool, and Toby gets utterly schooled by Charlie, who put in far more effort into learning the game than Toby as a casual player. At the end, Toby concedes by saying, good game. It was fun to watch. I, I like the exchange that Frank, I forget like what he says of himself. I think he's sort of like, he's not, he's not being humble, but he says like, but honestly, like, you know, you're a man who owns a billiards table. So I'm like pretty sure that you're going to be no slouch yourself. So that's a fun thing. But then like you don't see the rest of the conversation, but you see the start of uh, Frank saying, "Like I think I might know someone who can give you some really good intel on that thing I read in the handbook, i.e., a window." And it's essentially like Frank catching Thomas up on what happened in secret rooms, because this is something that is important, and we know is going to be important, and like because all of this feels like this is going to be connected to other things in the series, I think it's quite clever that they're playing billiards as this is happening, because they are essentially setting up shots 
knocking one ball into another. <laughs> I think it works well for framing that. And I think it's also just a fun scene to have. It's not like something that is pivotal to the story of Arlington, but is a nice addition. This is where I'm going to queue up that one moment from Guardians of the Galaxy. Metaphor. <laughs> but yes, I actually really like that. I, I hadn't considered the idea of the billiards table being itself a metaphor for, mm. oh, hey, let me tell you about this story. And it's not relevant to anyone that is reading Arlington in isolation, but it's a little bit of an Easter egg for those people that have read Secret Rooms already, mm. uh, especially since when we eventually get to Steamheart, everyone's going to be caught up on all of the events and everything like that as mm. Abigail and James recount their experiences in the House of Respect as being part of an official report to Thomas, even though this might have been part of a previous report or... Um, you know, part of the journal entries and reports that Annie and Frank might have given to Thomas in particular. They, when you were asking about what it was that Frank and uh, Thomas were saying to each other as they were talking oh, yeah. about, <laughs> is there any point of, of me playing you? Frank was talking about the fact that um, the physics of billiards and firearms are different. Yeah. And, like... I would say there's probably some level of needing to control um, your instrument, so to speak, um, regardless whether you're talking about the pool cue or your weapon. But it is it involves a different kind of physics, a different kind of um, control. So, it, yeah. It's certainly an acknowledgement of that trope you often see in media where the like person who's characterized by being a sharpshooter or someone who just has a lot of good luck will be like in an idle uh, situation. They're just like doing something and they like a hobby and they do it with an insane amount of accuracy. Think mm -hmm. like in Age of Ultron when they're doing darts and Hawkeye just sort of casually like gets, you know, interrupts a game that someone else is playing and just sort of shrugs as he gets like a perfect bullseye or something like that, just to be like, yeah, no, like this is their thing or how uh, Domino and one of the, I think Wolverine and the X-Men, one of the animated series, this character who is a sharpshooter, but I think is also specifically her power is oriented around, like, in fact, she's in the second Deadpool movie. People mm -hmm. know this is that she can sort of manipulate odds and probability. So mm -hmm. uh, at one point, she's just playing a game of, again, I get mixed up between pool and billiards, but she just, by breaking the balls, they all, like, go in <laughs> in one. So... It's a fun little trope that happens, but here I think it's a little acknowledgement. It's like, look, like, you know, I'm good with a firearm. Like, that doesn't mean that I'm good with billions, but yeah. No, no, no. So that, that's the thing, is that it grounds it a little bit more in reality, be like, yes, I've gotten very good at doing one specific thing. That doesn't mean that my, that my aim or my understanding of physics is correct on with every single physical activity I might do. Hawkeye... Mm in particular, that's kind of his thing, specifically because, yes, he's very good at... Trick shots? Aim, well, at, at specifically at uh, aiming with a bow, 
such that he can make really long distance shots and everything like that. But apparently, in addition to achieving mastery with a bow, he apparently is just, he's practiced with so many other things as well, perhaps, that it doesn't matter what kind of game you're playing, he's already worked at it and achieved mastery at that as well, whether we're talking about darts or the fact in uh, Civil War, he specifically comments on, I tried playing golf, played 18, shot 18, I just can't seem to miss. You know, like, that's specifically a Hawkeye thing, and it's like almost an indication to the fact of why it is that maybe he does fit in with the Avengers, because yes, maybe he is just a man that is really good with with arrow and bow, but apparently he's also just superhumanly good at hitting a target no matter what skill mm. he's using you mm. know and that's a, that's a little bit difficult to imagine so frank is kind of the more realistic version of that yeah if it was some sort of weapon like you know a throwing knife or something like maybe he would have some sort of like thing like he may be quite versed in that but there is no real reason why like billiards would factor into his craft so mm-hmm. yeah he'll he'll be probably better than most but not like the best by default if that makes sense but anyway this was a small scene i like it, it mm-hmm. i'm glad it's there and it's one of those moments that acknowledges that yes we're dealing with a lot of political thriller stuff windows we haven't forgot about them we're, we're promising that this is like a long game the pieces are moving forward mm-hmm. but the fact that we don't see the full conversation suggests that like it's not the focus for right now we're not exactly. losing focus by like suddenly remembering all the other cool stuff going on which i appreciate with the writing of new century as a whole is that just because especially in later books there's all these threads that like we could be going on let's go with these ones right now we'll get to the other ones when we get to them yeah so so we've jumped forward a little bit in time here to chapter 10, because that's where the billiards room saint is. Um, mm-hmm. Let's let's go back in time, <laughs> back to chapter 9, because it's about, like, we, we, we honed in specifically on the dynamics of learning more about Thomas, as well as the, the effect of, of the loss of Frederick on everything like that. But chapter 9 is indicative of more of the family dynamic as well where we Mm. see that sarah is naturally protective of everyone not just thomas and is the mediator between the various personalities of the group i think Mm. that harry in general requires less mediation because she is more soft-spoken and you know sort of off in her own little world a lot of the time but then again Mm. Sarah is also the one most likely to help make room for Harry to be Harry, which it is why she's understanding either mm-hmm. way, you know, yeah. understanding where people are coming from and what people need. Yeah, exactly. And so therefore be like, okay, Frank, uh, this is what we need to do as she's off in her mind palace or however you want to refer to it where she's like, okay, just make sure not to change too many things so that she's not too disconcerted when she comes back out of it and everything like that. She sort of drifts inwards is kind of like the way I look at it, yeah. And But the the far more 
intense confrontational stuff or mm. you know it, it's uh, that is on various levels because we've seen truth and and thomas in more of a, a drag out fight at this point and now we see a couple different versions of that here in chapter nine where she specifically wants to get back to work much as thomas would not would normally want to because she feels she has too much on her plate and thomas is for once trying to put on more of a family man face and trying to be like no no no, no. we should actually relax a little bit here and at the same time, we can't help imagine if, yes, he may be happy with having put out the second printing of the handbook and wanting to have a family get together because of that. But one also wonders if he is specifically trying to be more genial and taking a load off in order to like make everybody else relax as well and maybe make himself relax a little bit more because we know that put there's people under- at ease. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. We know that there's an undercurrent there in terms of him specifically voicing that he is afraid of the potential fallout from putting this out there anyway. It's Mm -hmm. just that he is not in denial about any of it. He is just trying to... Take control. Yes, exactly. He is trying to take control, and that's being passed down a little bit to everything else by being like let's just have a good meal and be thankful of who we are and that we have status and that we have the comfortable largesse that we do Mm. but then in between thomas's jibes about um would you like more wine whether (laughs) it's wine truth (laughs) yeah more W-I-N-E or more W-H-I-N-E. Or... Oh, it's specifically the phrasing, like, more wine, truth? No, thank you. Oh, go ahead. Wine some more. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. My that is God, he does it. dad jokes. <laughs> or his comment about the uh, the bird where he's like, I know you like to have a choice. It It feels like he's needling her a little bit. And mm. that's that's a little bit unnecessary like why why poke the bear especially if you're trying to keep everything on an even keel but then of course we also see the the quieter moment between the two of them where truth is honest about how she feels Mm. um and thomas is trying to assure her that he still loves her as his daughter but Truth is like, but yeah, but but you have no idea how difficult it is to be your child and have to go up against you like I do. Mm. And Sarah goes on to talk about the fact that it's always been like this to one extent or another ever since Truth was old enough to speak. I swear to God that I'm not trying to constantly bring the conversation back to the West Wing. Though it's hard not to, since I know Alex was a huge fan of the first four seasons at the very least, and its influence on the novel Arlington is very strong. And there is a very specific episode in season two where we see a conflict between President Bartlett and his middle daughter Ellie. The conflict between them is not the same as the one between Thomas and Truth, but there is a resonance and that Jed Bartlett is the epitome of the confrontational but principled patriarch 
uh, doesn't necessarily realize the effect he has on his daughter, and is maybe a little bit in denial about it. He wants Ellie to be strong and principled and happy, but he also has a narrow view of how that should be enacted. And it's hard to reconcile the fact that maybe he screwed up by not giving her the support she needed to live on her own terms. By the end of the eponymous episode Ellie, Jed Bartlett has a greater self-awareness and tries to make things right. Unfortunately, it's not clear that Thomas manages that himself. There's something that I think actually does take Thomas back is that when Truth says that you make me the bad guy, and mm. Thomas like that he means it when he says that like that that's not my intention at all. But like Truth says like, but you do because mm-hmm. like you are so like set that like what you're doing is for the good of humanity and because i have to be the person who like goes against you this by like definition i'm the roadblock in your Mm. journey to make things better that Mm. makes me the bad guy and that's so hard because like thomas we've established he likes it when people bring his a-game i think that as frustrated as he can be i think he is glad that his daughter is someone who is bringing her a-game and is challenging him on this but i think that she doesn't necessarily enjoy the challenging the Mm. process of challenging as much because it takes a toll that like you know you can't just be in this position and expect that like that doesn't make me feel bad for it that Mm -hmm. she's not going to stop it it's just that it's a position that he can't that he doesn't necessarily have control over but he has nevertheless put her in and i think that that's a really understandable point of frustration on we see things from his perspective absolutely we do and so we don't really agree with what her conclusions are like Uh, maybe like there's a few things that we go like oh like you know yes you do understand people but like we like what thomas is trying to do but yeah i just like i find truth's position really sympathetic we did talk about this last time during the actual conversation and Mm -hmm. especially after some additional conversations with maureen on the subject because this is you know one of those complex situations Yes, I'm in line with what Thomas wants Mm. to accomplish. I don't necessarily always agree with how he's going about accomplishing it. I don't necessarily think that either Truth or Thomas has the complete right of it in terms of the methods of dealing with this situation. But that's kind of the problem, is that in a proper conversation... In like the conversation that happens between Thomas and Sarah and Frank back in the carriage in regards to how do we actually split the difference in terms of providing alcohol to people in such a way that they'll imbibe uh, sensibly. Mm. The thing there is that it seems like there is a potential compromise in terms of how do we go between not letting people have free access to alcohol and how do, how do we and not letting people have any access to alcohol in regards to the conversation between Thomas and Truth one person is presenting their opinion another person is presenting their opinion 
And the eventual conclusion, apparently, is not taking a point in between that might take both accounts... A compromise. A compromise, yeah. Instead, Thomas is basically, okay, I've heard what you had to say, now we're doing it my way. Hmm. That's, that's infuriating. Yes, that is infuriating to truth in particular, and it's something that I have to take into consideration when mm. thinking about how I feel about Thomas, how I feel about what he's doing, and mm. how I feel about what it is that's going to bring this to a tragedy at the end. Yeah, and it's one of those things that, like, he he says that, you know, I really am listening, but mm. for all intents and purposes, he hasn't taken on board anything that they have said. So, like, he may as well have not listened at all. So I mm. think that's, it's kind of like... I wouldn't say that it's almost more infuriating than if he said, like, I'm not listening to what you say at all, but it carries its own set of, like, frustrations that, Mm -hmm. like, Truth is one of those characters who doesn't necessarily get positioned at the forefront as much as some of the other, like, protagonists of New Century, and amid the other Arlingtons, there's so many favourites that it's, like, difficult to contend with. But I really am so thankful for her presence in this series because Mm -hmm. she is this person who needs to be there to be like working on these things and to call some stuff out. And I think that she's played both in the writing and in the performance with this deft balance between like presenting the other side of things and always feeling like she's never too far away from what you want to see these characters accomplish. Mm. Yeah. So, once more, we have a short episode. Based on the amount of recording we have left, 25B is going to be closer to an hour and 20 minutes. And given that we recorded for another two hours on the final topics for chapters 9 through 12, we may have a C episode and a D episode depending on how much of that second recording is relevant content, and how much is just me and Toby talking. That said, after our first outro, I'm going to share a story Toby told me during pre-podcast conversation. We recorded on Father's Day, which means that as a result, Toby brought up that his father passed nine years ago, and he was feeling pensive and melancholy as a result. We pondered saving this tale for a later date, but I ended up deciding that not only would his story fill out the episode, but it was also relevant to our conversation during this episode. That said, if discussions of grief and loss are difficult for you, you can also just skip it, as it is only very tangentially related to our discussions of New Century. As earlier alluded to, this means we have two outro songs, both from favorite artists of mine. This first one was written for the Wild Thornberries movie, but due to the fact that Thomas's relationships with his daughters is important in this story, I thought invoking it would be a good touch. So for a brief intermission before Toby's story, this is Paul Simon with Father and Daughter. If you leap awake in the mirror 
Sorry, I uh, was going on a uh, mental roadmap uh, thinking about uh, memory and stuff like that. And for whatever reason, it just took me on a road of uh, maybe it's because today is the day it is. But uh, it's a messy day for those listening to this. This is uh, 20th of June 2021 and it is Father's Day. And uh, Mm. that is... 
a an odd day when you are coming let's see uh november this year it will have been nine years since losing dad so uh mm. that is this is this this is sort of like been brought up like provoked from nothing really so i do apologize to greg and this could be something that's on the cutting room floor it, it not i don't even have a point that this is heading towards but i i, su- I mean i think it's definitely gonna get hit the cutting room floor because i was kind of not prepared for that detail so we've covered uh, many things on yeah. your life but the fact that you lost your father nine years ago was not something that i was familiar with no um, i apologize for that that is a very I know that that was that was something that came up like mm-hmm. apropos of nothing. So I apologize, Greg. Um, no, 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 it's okay. Yeah. It just makes for a very odd. If you're okay with talking about it at some point, mm. I just feel like it might be an interesting talking point. I don't know what your relationship with your father was like before he passed, but just the experience of fathers and sons in general, or fathers and and child in general as it takes place in New Century, and the mm. fact that Alex is coming from a place where he had a complex negative relationship with his father. I had a complex relationship with my father. It was overall positive. I, I'm going to be mm. going to see my father today, which is why um, we're recording early. You know, He's going on to help me out in my current living situation where I'm mm. basically going to be um, moving back into the family house for... A month or so until I can reestablish a new potential place to live. But yeah, just reflecting on your familial experiences and what it means to have lost your father at such a young age. So yeah, I I think I can express it concisely that my relationship with my dad was good. For a lot of my young life, he worked abroad. Essentially, he would. Mm Or he would be away during the week and come back on weekends, but not every weekend. We traveled around the world and that was part of like, you know, he would be positioned to work in Thailand. That was where I was born. Uh, uh, Before that, it was in Spain where my two older brothers were born. And then we moved back to the UK for a bit. Then we moved to Venezuela and that's where some of my earliest memories are in uh, living in Caracas and then we moved back to the UK then at one point when I think he had about four or five years where he was retired I saw a bit more of him and it was something where he was always present enough not like I think I always had a much more familiar relationship with my mum and still do with dad who we would see plenty of but he was just someone who was always working we got to know each other a lot better I think during my teenage years when he retired and as I was starting to become more like myself that was I was able to kind of have conversations with him but as I was going to uni like that was the point where I knew whatever I would do with my life I wanted it to be centered around arts and humanities and all of that sort of thing and that's kind of just a different thing to what dad was familiar with because he was very much in like business and economics stuff Mm -hmm. but 
I, I will always remember the summer before I went to uni, I just to pass the time started up that blog that I used to do the um, reviews and uh, new century stuff on. And I just used it as a means of continuing to write. I had written for the student newspapers to do film reviews at my school. And then he took a look at my blog and he thought he liked it. He he liked one of the things and I can't even remember what it was about, but I, I was always touched by that because I knew that my mum was much more like arts and humanities aligned in interest than dad was, but he always put that interest in. And then, and apologies for this complete sort of tangent on it, but I suppose it's as good as time as any to expunge or to mm -hmm. convey this. But uh, I had my first term in uni and we had a weekend where because of a collection of birthdays that happened in November, like my oldest brother, uh, my grandmother on my mum's side, we sort of all, and we would do this each year, we would all like get together and celebrate like a bunch of birthdays. And that was a time we were all together and that drew, drove us to station. So James and I, who we went to the same uni in Bristol, uh, could go and uh, then after that we heard on Monday just a te like message from mum saying that like it was a really lovely weekend and it really was and then Tuesday I went into class and uh, I was contacted and uh, brought out of class and I was just told to ring my family mm. and I turned my phone on and just had a bunch of messages saying, you know, ring when you can. And I had some idea that something bad has happened, but I thought it would be like one of my grandparents, just like it felt like that was mm -hmm. the most likely thing. And that was just when I was told that dad had died. Was it a and heart attack or it it was and he he was it was something that he had had heart problems before mm. but it was not a recent development or something that we knew it was something emphatically blindsiding mm. you know uh, like for the weeks and months after that we picked up the pieces and everything and you manage and you do mm -hmm. your deal. And I would say that the experience is a complicated one because on the one hand, I had a very positive relationship with my dad and I think I have knew him well enough that I can actually infer a lot of what he would say when I come across different situations. Mm -hmm. And yet there is also an undeniable element that the relationship I have with my dad is... A neutral in that it is absent one. I'm planning to get married to the most wonderful woman that I will ever meet and could ever imagine meeting. I met Sarah a year after losing dad, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. And it's uh, one of my great sadnesses is that they never had a chance to meet, though. I think she has a feeling of knowing him uh, from what I've said. But 
I will never know what he what he would tell me around now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can infer, but I just life surprises you and people surprise you. I I surprised Greg when I started this apropos of nothing. Um and I can't really ever conceptualize what dad would say for how to be a good husband or potentially be a good father in the future. I don't know. So I just have to trust that trying to do my best is enough. I've said this story before. Uh, Alex knows this. But um, one of my eternal points of gratitude to Alex and everyone involved in uh, like he's worked with over the years is on the day that we lost dad, James, my one of my brothers, uh, and I got a train back and there wasn't really anything to do or say. And But on the train ride back, it was the year that uh, the first Hobbit movie had come out. And what Alex had done at the time was a series of shows on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And by sheer coincidence, he had just put out the Fellowship of the Ring show. And hearing just a show about people celebrating a film that meant so much and is just so like meaningful to them, to us, and laughing about it, just... That was a moment of respite in one of the hardest days. And that's something I can never really give back. I remember you've told that story before, but I don't think I realized, or I had literally forgotten that Mm -hmm. the reason that day was so difficult was because you lost your dad, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember, because you definitely mentioned The Hobbit and your brother... I think when we were talking about (sighs) discussing your feelings about Tiger's Eye, Mm. but if you mentioned it was because this was the day after you lost your father, I, I, I completely forgot that part because I feel like, Mm. I feel like I would have remembered it if you'd said. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And again, I have to apologize that that really was something that came Mm. uh, out of nowhere, but uh, Mm. sometimes you feel a need to, Open a release valve, but apologies to listeners for that, and uh, thank you for sharing in that. That's a hell of a way to start. I again, (laughs) I am really sorry to start that way. I don't really know what came over me, but it just like it started, and then it had to come out. I guess. (laughs) I mean, I asked the question the second I was like, "Wait, what could it be?" And I realized that Father's Day is a thing over there on your side of the pond because Mm. Alex posted about it earlier. But I just hadn't realized that it would have such significance for you, specifically because your father Mm. had already passed on. Also, weirdest fucking tangent. I mean, I don't want to go too far on this because I want to now actually get to what we're going to talk about. But all I could think of is you were describing your relationship with your father growing up, that you basically Mm -hmm. had the antithesis of Rebecca Wolverton's experience with her father. Yeah, a little. Uh... Charles Charles was also absent, 
But at the very mm. least, you didn't have the overwhelming negative experience that she had with her I, own I father. had the positive version of what Rebecca's experience was, where the final note was not a note of, I do not condone the path you have been on, and mm -hmm. I put things in line that mean that you will be set on the path I dictate for you. Mm -hmm. That was never what I had with Dad. That mm -hmm. so, But the level of absentness yes. is also, you know, pursuing business, as you say, is mm. something that your father was doing. It's just that mm. clearly had, like, there was no... I was, I was, was never I was never brought I was never like pulled aside and told in a uh, Sam the Eagle voice that today Toby is the day you learn about business. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was well played, sir. And this final part was because we couldn't help but talk about it some more after we decided to stop recording for the day, and I ended up coming up with some new conclusions as to why this might have come up now, of all times. Oh, this this was really fun. And uh, so, uh, apologies again that I started in a, I think, for a number of reasons, whether it was just, like, the, today's day, or, mm -hmm. like, getting feedback on the last piece of work and having certain reservations and things. My head was sort of in a introspective place to start off with, but uh, thank you for being patient as I vented that. That. I like learning things about you, dude. Oh, you know? I, I like th th that was another thing was that like it's a definitive life moment, and I think that like you are uh, someone who I wanted to share that story with. So, just putting the podcast aside, like I'm very happy that that got shared. I think that I would like to apply some of that at one point because it's like certainly stuff that factors into how I engage with some media. But I think that rather than force it to like mm. be applied to Arlington or just specifically these set of chapters, I may bank it. And if it's something that comes up, then I might record on Audacity by myself just a maybe a written version of that that kind of properly like lays out why it's relevant. But for now, that was really good. That was really good. I can tell you exactly why it was relevant. I mean, there 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 can be multiple layers to it, but when I think about it and juxtaposing it with the chapters that we were going to cover today, the fact that you are talking about the loss of an important family member mm. Com mm. compared yes. against Thomas feeling the need to talk about the loss of Frederick in mm. in private consultation with Frank, mm. you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that that definitely the, the similarity knocks me for six there. Yeah. So, man, I'm really glad that we're not dealing with a series where grief is a recurring thing. <laughs> oh wait, <laughs> no, no, like honestly, like I think that's one of the reasons I really enjoy New Century is that it kind of frames grief a way that isn't necessarily always a heartbreaking downer sort of thing it sort of like it acknowledges as a part of life that can lead to that it's just that it also like we also process our grief not just like in those moments where we have to just break down and have a cry but also just in the way we live our life day to day so mm -hmm. yeah um i feel 
a lot better after all of that, as I always do after our conversations. <laughs> I'm excited as fuck to hear Century Tales. And all in all, just you have a lovely day. I extend my love to the rest of your family and I hope to see you around the Discord soon, Greg. Absolutely. At the time of that recording session, I felt deeply apologetic to both Greg and to anyone listening for the places my head and heart had taken me, and by consequence, the subject of conversation. I thought that everything I said in the recorded segments you just heard was basically just an aimless expression of grief and the pang of absence I was feeling that day. As such, I thought at the time that I'd better come back and tidy things up a bit. You know, make all of it have a point, as it were. Something that made it feel relevant and worth taking anyone listening to that headspace, beyond just indulging my own need to vent and ache that had been built up and came pouring out of me before I could realise or seize the reins and hold it back. Revisiting, and I will say it is a curious blend of profoundly disturbing yet immensely cathartic to hear your own voice talk about heartache and grief. It's all you, and it's all your thoughts and feelings that you're intimately familiar with, but at the same time, the it's a construct of your recorded voice, and it's taken out of your hands, so it becomes an external crystallization of your own grief. It's disorientating, disarming, and yet also validating. It becomes easier to reconcile a part of you when you hear it as if it could be coming from another person in the room with you as you listen to the recording. So, personally, I am glad and thankful for both the opportunity to talk this all through with a dear friend, Greg, that's you, by the way, and the experience of hearing myself reflect on these memories and appreciating the place that they have in the person I have ended up making of myself. As for its place on this show of ours, I think I will stand by what I said from the heart on that day of recording, and hope that this last segment was meaningful to a degree for anyone listening in as well, even if it's just because you have more insight into who I am and how that affects the way I engage with these stories. Greg was very sharp on the day by being able to draw a connection between this and the subject matter of the chapters we discussed, and especially the main chapter we focused on in this episode, If I were to wrap this up by considering how my feelings towards losing my dad and his absence over the years since feel relevant when reflecting on New Century and Arlington in particular, I suppose I'd say that those competing yet wonderfully overlapping feelings of determination to not let loss be the end of you and to carry forward and live your own life on your own terms, and the other desire to do right by the ones you have lost and to think on them. And in the case of Dad, I always cite one of his most well-known phrases with a smile, just get on with it. The push, pull, and 
occasional synchronicity between those two feelings is something I sense in so many of New Century's cast members. Arlington, the book, is filled with such loss and people who have faced too much heartbreak. But a lot of those people are also working so hard too. And picking yourself up again and trying your best to put the work in and do a good job is one of the most inspiring elements of grief and of New Century that I can think of. And I'd say that's what I'd like to take away from all of this. To close us out, Toby's story about wishing he knew what his father would say about his upcoming marriage and other significant life moments made me think of a very specific song that was intensely personal to me growing up. Until next time, this is Phil Collins with Father to Son. Just look up.